Discover Virtual Reality Design Podcast. This is your host, Aki Ervinen. And today we're going to talk about VR and architecture with a Norwegian architect, uh, Kim Bauman Larsen. And we'll get to that discussion shortly. But before that, a couple of things. I do want to remind you, dear listeners, that I do write a newsletter. Uh, it's called Design Superpowers, and you can find it at designsuperpowers.substack.com so that's designsuperpowers.substack.com and over there for instance I wrote a piece about the book that we discussed in the last episode with co-author Mariana Obrist on multisensory experiences and technologies so do subscribe over there in the URL I just mentioned and I also will write a piece about today's conversation especially with the purpose of linking to some of the materials that we mention in our discussions with Kim and and his uh, writings about VR environmental psychology and architecture so yeah but that's it uh, without further ado I'll give you Kim Bauman Larsen All right, dear listeners, we are here actually in VR uh, with Kim Bauman Larsen, who is an architect by trade, and he has been working on VR for decades, uh, you might say, and especially all things spatial. And I'll let Kim introduce himself in a minute, but we we will be talking about architecture and what is the sort of uh, state of architecture in VR at the moment and what are the interesting approaches from architecture that we could take on when thinking about uh, designing virtual spaces. But uh, uh, without further ado, Kim, uh, do tell us a little bit of your journey into VR, please. Yes, certainly. So, um, as you said, I'm educated an architect and I um, I started in Oslo in Norway at the Oslo School of Architecture first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an interest in uh, design for extreme environments. All right. And this goes actually back to my great grandfather being a polar pioneer. Oh, wow. Um, so this is something that maybe not so many people know, but um, he explored both the Antarctic and Arctic. And uh, I think it was the he was the first uh, man to ski on the Antarctic wow. <laughs> um, landmass yeah. way back. Nice. So anyway, um, I I uh, applied for and then got a Fulbright scholarship to go to study space architecture in Houston, mm-hmm. um, and and I went there in '93 and um, I was doing that and um, and then uh, there was. This company, this VR startup called Cybersim, mm-hmm. that I got, uh, that I started working for a little bit while I was studying, and when I finished my studies, they wanted to hire me on. Yeah. Uh, so that was my, that was my first professional venture into VR, I guess you could say. Although I had actually tried VR in the UK some years earlier mm-hmm. in uh, Nottingham Forest. Wow. One of those uh, <laughs> VR arcades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cool. 
but at, as you probably realize, the um, the VR, the commercial nature of VR at that time was not the best. Mm. Even though we had clients like NASA and Compaq Computers, mm-hmm. it was uh, difficult. Yeah. So we kind of pivoted to web. This was really at the birth of the World Wide Web. Sure. So we are talking like mid-90s. Yeah, so this was 94, 95, I yeah. guess. Then for personal reasons, I decided to go back to Norway again. So mm-hmm. then I kind of jumped out of VR again, got back to Norway, and I founded first one company and then a second company, uh, both doing uh, architecture visualization. Cool. Yeah. And uh, I didn't really I didn't really go in, back into VR until the Oculus Kickstarter came about. Mm-hmm. So I basically spent many, many years working with real-time graphics. Um, oh, sorry, I started working with real-time graphics maybe around uh, 2011, 2010, 2011. Sure. Uh, and we actually thought about AR before VR. Mm-hmm. But then we quickly realized that, um, yeah, trying to visualize the building in one-to-one scale on a mobile phone uh, wasn't really feasible. Yeah. I mean, it's just now it's starting to become something that's practical, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. So um, when the um, Oculus Kickstarter came about, I managed to get some students into our studio. We did a project, and then I basically realized I want to do this full time. So I quit my own company and then went back to working for myself again. Yeah, and that that I've done since uh, 2013. Awesome. And so now we are in, I I will post pictures (laughs) for our listeners, but we are in virtual reality in a, this uh, quite a astonishing uh, pavilion, uh, an open, well, semi-open space, I guess you would say. And this is a space for the architecture and construction industry, right? Correct. This is part of uh, your work with dimension design that you use this space to uh, or spaces similar to this to showcase designs and assets to stakeholders. Is that cor- correct? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge that my personal company is called Dimension Design and the client mm-hmm. for this company is called Dimension 10. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... that is slightly confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I had been talking to them for at least a year, I think, where I said I begged them to let me design their um, their virtual collaboration space. Yes. And then when they, they got some funding and they came back to me and say, hey, we really want you to design it. And we really like your ideas about using both science and art um, mm-hmm. to create a space that feels comfortable and also f- uh, is a good space to work in. Yeah. So we had the design process where, um, well, we, they actually had an existing space we had, which had a number of qualities that we wanted to retain. Mm-hmm. So one of those qualities was this big like plaza-like um, feeling. It's like an indoor-outdoor feeling, I guess yeah. you could say. And that's because there is, uh, of course, so much windows, so much light coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the requirement for this large space, you would think in VR, you don't need a big space. You only need a you know, meeting room, right? Mm-hmm. But the requirement for this large space is that some other clients wanted to show a big model in one, one-to-one scale in this this space, in this room. Yeah. Um, like a, what they call a Christmas uh, well, uh, like sitting on the bottom of the ocean with the petroleum and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the requirements. That's why it's so you know fairly tall in here and, and big and open. 
Yeah. Then what the other requirements were were that um, they were thinking about uh, how to. Well, they wanted something that um, where where people could actually work in here. So there's a number of solutions in in AEC, uh, and most of them are focused on just quickly getting into the actual model. Mm-hmm. Right. So you take an architectural model from a BIM software, you load it in, and uh, we can uh, we can take one out here. Yeah. And then you can you can scale it up. You can look at it and. Uh, most people will then just like immediately want to go in there and that's mm-hmm. of course fine but they also wanted to be able to you know have a, a meeting room to be able to meet virtually sure sure so i'm um, just describing for our listeners what we're seeing so kim brought in a model of of actually this kind of like a, this is a bit meta in the sense that we are seeing a, a model before us of the space that we are actually in yep. so it's kind of like an over it works as it is now as an like an overview of, of of the space that you can manipulate its scale and and look at it obviously from different perspectives and so on and so forth yeah but go on yeah so so what we did which was a bit meta as well we so we used the earlier version of the software when we designed the new version of the software that included this space mm-hmm. so we took these kind of models in into the prior version of the software and then we could discuss them but anyway so this was the first version of the model and we we, we enjoyed it a lot but um, it was it proved basically too costly and time consuming to to have so i redesigned it to become this one mm-hmm. and yeah so i guess it has a lot of the things that i find um, uh, important when designing a space that's uh, you know it could be real or it could be virtual but one of the things is uh, closeness to nature and also bringing nature inside mm-hmm. since the studies show that this has a calming effect on people it makes people more relaxed so, you know, there's a reason we put all these greenery and plants in our office buildings. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one kind of area that fascinates me about your approach is that, uh, as you just described, so you are drawing from what is known as environmental psychology into into your work. So, uh, can you describe a bit what that means? Well, I mean, it, it basically, it's the study of how environments affects us as human beings, yes. how they affects, uh, affect our emotions, mm-hmm. um, our thoughts and actions. And uh, it's, it's a, as far as I understand, it's a fairly small research field, although it yeah. is gaining traction. And it is um, partly, I think, because of VR, because mm-hmm. it's much easier to do these kind of studies when you can do them virtually than sure. having to... You know, monitor a lot of people in the real big, large environments and see yeah, how they react. Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, I remember so, so from your presentation there was uh, some fascinating findings. For instance, having to do with both color and shape. So, so at least there's mm. some research evidence that, for instance, blue color is kind of conducive to imagination and creativity. So yeah, so I think one of the theories is that um, it kind of um, gives you, um, uh, it makes you recall the feeling of being maybe on a beach, um, mm-hmm. seeing blue ocean or blue sky, which is a relaxing place to be. And sure. when you relax, it's easier to be uh, creative. Mm-hmm. And so the takeaway would be that <laughs> if you want to create like a, 
productivity app. Uh, I know it's it's not quite as simple as this, but but you could uh, sort of give some thought to how you would use a color like blue in the environment or in the in the application itself uh, for these purposes. Yes, and also green. So both yeah. of those colors. All right. And then regarding shapes, I uh, I mean the space that we are now in, I think testifies mm. to this, but. Uh, you have always been drawn to sort of curved shapes and uh, and there are some yep. findings also regarding that, that curved shapes have uh, potential to induce like uh, relaxation and, 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 and moods like that. Yeah, so I think the, the research then points to that this is probably buried very deep in our brains and mm -hmm. it goes back to things like you know a jagged edge of, of rock or something can be sure. something you could cut yourself on or the you know the teeth of a of a lion or tiger versus something that's really round and uh, like a, a polished uh, stone from the sea uh, will be co um, good to sit on and, and comfortable yeah so that's the theory behind that and then there's also a theory about complexity, which you find in nature. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when you have like a series of building facades that are where there's very little variation between each facade, mm -hmm. uh, it's become it becomes more stressful for you uh, unconsciously. Okay. But if you introduce more variation, like uh, I showed in my presentation, like a typical Parisian shopping street with all mm -hmm. these small shops and different sure. styles of then then that's um, uh, a place where it's much more comfortable to be mm -hmm. so in this space there is you know uh, i voluntarily introduce some kind of variation if you look at these kind of sort of abstract stone garden here mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. which together with the pavilions sort of introduces this uh, richness and um, one of the things that happens when you are in an environment like that, you become more curious. So you, you, you feel you feel you want to explore a bit. Sure. And then there is these pavilions. So they kind of embody what we were talking about um, of shaping things and making them round mm -hmm. and more friendly. And um, they had sort of like these kind of meeting rooms in the original experience but that you couldn't use them um, and I decided well um, I want to see if we can create some additional spaces and they yeah. might not be used by a lot of people but they they also add some contrast and there there's also something else in this which is sort of what I learned from Frank Lloyd Wright uh, which is this feeling of you don't really truly get it in VR unless you can walk a lot but uh, mm -hmm. these feelings of uh, release and compression uh, yes yeah, yeah, this yeah. is much lower lower ceiling space cool. this is uh, also more comfortable um, uh, and then you kind of look out on the uh, the area here yeah i was going to ask about the, the use of then uh, different materials like you have water elements surrounding the the main space uh, so mm -hmm. that must have been also a deliberate design choice as well yeah, it was um, it was something that I had wanted to bring in, and uh, I was a bit worried about the um, performance. Yeah, so it sure. was uh, a late addition, but uh, yeah, it's 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 again back to the introduction of, of natural elements, mm -hmm. and um, and it's all, and there, that's also why there is wood in these pavilions. Yeah. Um, even of course in VR, there is there is no real wood or real stone. 
sure. um, <laughs> and there's also um, uh, um, there's a um, kind of brighter wood in the um, the wood trusses mm -hmm. uh, of uh, sort of mimicking ash and um, yeah, there, it's, there's a lot of uh, story infused in this thing, but it's not all that obvious, but it goes back to the original idea of creating sort of a building um, as, a, as a tree, as the Yggdrasil, at the, uh, the, the Norse mythology. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have in, in your presentation also, you had like this couple of other case studies. Uh, so for instance, um, the martial arts dojo. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? project yeah so the dojo was i guess you could say it was the first real architectural space that i designed in vr since way back in 95 mm -hmm. and, the, and the stuff i designed way back in 95 uh, it's not too much to look at these days <laughs> uh, it was a gallery but mm -hmm. uh, art gallery but yeah so the martial art um uh, project i did for a norwegian startup called uh, holocap and they have a technology for uh, real-time volumetric capture using oh, yeah. depth cameras and um, the, the unique thing about their software is that you could record something in vr uh, and see it in vr as it's being recorded so it's okay. um, it's instantaneous like maybe five to seven frames lag yeah and they wanted to have sort of a demo and we were talking about what would be the kind of really cool thing to have and we started with um, of course the holodeck from star trek Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, everybody's doing that, and it's a bit of a, yeah, it's not a, it's a bit of a boring space. And sure, then we sure. said, well, there's the Matrix, right? <laughs> the Matrix is cool. Um, what about the dojo scene in Matrix where mm -hmm. Neo fights Morpheus? Sure. And I said, uh, yeah, let's do that, and then let's get a, a wushu or kung fu artist to be in here. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so it's ba basically a bit of an homage to Matrix. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of my favorite films, along with Blade Runner and 2001 sure. and a few others. Uh, but I didn't want to just copy the exact set from Matrix. I wanted to sure. design my own dojo. Yeah, so, so basically the dojo is um, kind of small. It has... You know, a space in the middle with the tatami mats where you fight, and then there's a bit of a surrounding walkway um, and a mezzanine level on the on the second level which you can't really get to but it, um, it sort of alludes to somebody could be up there and watching you and mm -hmm. and there's some um, there's some shadows cast on the on the shoji doors to give a sense of um, uh, a mystical quality to the space sure which we wanted because we originally thought we could have this uh, kung fu artist kind of appear in the middle of the air somewhere and stuff like that though mm -hmm. And also the lighting is very diffuse, uh, which was mostly because we wanted not to have something that could cast really hard shadows because it would be difficult to match in the capture in a good way. Mm -hmm. But but uh, the kind of benefit of that is that it's a really comfortable space to be in. So maybe not now, but maybe another time we could go and visit it because I have a version of it in VR chat. Nice, nice, cool. Now, given these approaches that, that you are trying to embed into your own work <laughs> what's your sort of general assessment of uh, how well do people in general who create spaces in vr and whether they are more sort of utilitarian applications or whether they are games or whatever <laughs> how well are like principles and best practices mm -hmm. from architecture taken into account in your assessment 
Well, from um, so what I've mostly been looking at are um, applications that are for virtual meetings, for mm-hmm. maybe teaching, and things like that. And yeah. they have, of course, they have visual. They have different um, levels of visual realism, and some are more cartoony, and others, like say, Alt Space VR, is very cartoony. Yeah. While others, like Engage, is more realistic. Mm-hmm. And some, I guess, some are taking architect. You could say they're taking architecture um, seriously in a way because they're trying to. A lot of the time, I feel that they're trying to recreate real spaces. Mm-hmm. But these spaces are not very interesting. It's not. It's not like in VR you can literally create anything you want. Sure. You don't have the. Um, material limitations that you have in real life you have other limitations like polygon count Mm -hmm. and how many complex textures and materials you could have but i think um there is literally too little uh, ambition when it comes to creating good architecture because there is architecture and then there is architecture (laughs) so uh, (laughs) and but i i i guess one challenge is that it takes a lot more time to create good architecture and also which means money right so it's more mm-hmm. costly but i don't think there's also that many architects that are yeah you know educated architect and that they really have a passion for virtual architecture most architecture will have a passion but for brick and mortar architecture sure 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 uh that's also reminds me that you also feel that the current VR tools for creating spaces or creating assets don't necessarily give you the the amount of control that you'd like to have and you've accustomed to. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so you use still you could say traditional modeling software mm. and, and stuff like that. But where do you see that going? Do you see, for instance, there there have been some very early demos of these so-called hybrid uh, applications where you can take a software like Substance Painter and like use it in a desktop mode in VR that enables you to paint textures by hand with a very granular control. Mm-hmm. But so where where do you see kind of like architectural tools uh, going uh, in in VR going forward? Well, first I will just backtrack a bit and say yeah. that um, the, the the tools that I feel that I am most comfortable with have a very fine uh, precision. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I like to do a lot of, you know, bowling work and stuff like that, and 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 use geometry very precisely. Like this thing sure. here is, you know, yeah, yeah. it's very there's it, there's elements that can be copied and rotated around, and there's very precise things. Like if you see how, if you look at this, uh, there's actually where the glass goes into between the wood and mm-hmm. the stone. There's a bit of a like in real life, like a, a million yeah. there. Anyway. Yeah, 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 I can see. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, yes. um, uh, and then you have that on one hand, which you get from Rhino and maybe, you know, AutoCAD and MarkStation and tools like that. And then you combine it with, you also need control over all your triangles and do proper UVs. And then you would need, then we'd be better off with a tool like Blender or 3D mm-hmm. Max from Maya or something like that. Yeah. So I haven't find these new I haven't found these new tools that are more they're more like art tools to create yeah. art they don't have the precision and um then it it becomes very difficult for me to use them sure uh and I don't really like the approach of taking existing 
tool that's created for a desktop metaphor, mm-hmm. which is really uh, um, an interface that heralds back to the 60s and Sketchpad sure. and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the research done, you know, way back. Uh, it hasn't changed much since then. And I think mm-hmm. we, need, uh, we need a spatial design paradigm. We need... Um, we need tools that is that are created from the bottom up to be spatial that you mm-hmm. work with in a three-dimensional space yeah and i guess it's coming but it's um i haven't found any tools yet that i i can use sure sure have you tried gravity sketch yes i have <laughs> what's but your I, take is, is that still for you like more like uh i don't want to put words in your mouth but it does it because it seems to be gaining traction, for instance, in the automotive industry in designing concept cars and, and accelerating the speed of that mm. process. But uh, obviously cars are smaller <laughs> uh, mm. than, than big spaces like this. So what, what do you think is the sort of uh, the, the big difference there between that kind of a design task and architecture? Well, you pretty much said it, I think. It's like uh, it's well suited for object-oriented design, you know, mm. um, and uh, a car is an object, although you yeah. can sit inside it. But architecture, yeah, you could look at architecture as objects, which I think also is a problem in architecture, and that mm-hmm. um, yeah. we look at the model as a model, you know, we look at, oh, it has to look nice from when you see it like this, but, you know, nobody's going to see it like that unless they're in a plane or a helicopter sure. or maybe in a neighboring building. But what I really think is interesting about these new kinds of architecture that I hope that will come out of designing in VR is that we get to do more design of architecture from within the architecture mm-hmm. so that, that you can, you, you can, you can design a space and you're you're at one-to-one scale. So you could, like if I was in this thing and I could say, well, this is too, it needs to be steeper and I can adjust the angle and then, yeah, that's more comfortable or this is too tall, I'll, I'll drag it down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, it's the right height. Yeah. Um, and then you could scale it up and it become a model and you can look at it in different scales because architects have always been you know, using different scales to analyze and to design and draw. Sure. But I think um, in VR, you have the potential from designing from inside out, which is much the way interior architects work, but they mm-hmm. only work with the interiors. They don't work with the whole of uh, yeah. the architecture. Yeah. Do you see going forward any sort of opportunities between sort of bridging the physical and the digital. So for instance, you mentioned the physical models and how that has been kind of like a paradigm in architecture, like the maquettes and stuff. And do you see any value in trying to sort of figure out how to, for instance, bring in uh, physical models into something like VR and iterate between the physical and the digital uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's um, there's a lot of architects that do that. Um, they scan in the models and they yeah. print it out and then they refine that and then they go back and forth. And um, that requires a lot of machinery and, and, and sure. space and stuff. I think for me, I would be more interested in waiting for the, um, uh, you know, more haptic feedback you would get mm-hmm. in future interface design, uh, like... Uh, Maybe haptic gloves or something sure, like that. Sure, sure. Cool. Okay. Um, maybe as a final thing, I mean, is there a, is there a place where uh, people can find your stuff online or 
are you active uh, on Twitter and stuff uh, that people could get more familiar with your work? Uh, at Kim Zark, so K-I-M-S-A-R-C dot com. Um, you will find this project and some others. And um, I do have a little blog there, although I don't write that often. But when I write, this um, should be something uh, useful and meaningful to read. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably the best space uh, to reach. Well, we've referred to your pres- real-time conference presentation a number of times. Will that be available uh, online? I hope so. Um, yeah. I They do have a video recording of it with me yeah. talking. Well, hopefully that. by the time that this comes mm. out, it might even be available because I would certainly uh, recommend it to like folks for myself who is kind of always been interested in architecture but hasn't really practiced it really other than creating you know i used to used to work in games and stuff and obviously now in vr so you do create spaces but it Mm -hmm. does feel often that you might have some just tacit knowledge of uh thinking about designing experiences but uh for instance uh going through your presentation i felt that there was some good pointers on how you can become more sort of deliberate in thinking about the spaces you you create and 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 understand that the the amount of attention to detail you yourself try to put into something like interaction uh you can put as this space also testifies you can put as much uh, if if even even more de- attention to detail into designing spaces and architecture into vr so uh, and i think uh, my gut feeling is that many people out there would benefit from from more sort of uh, focused approaches into into uh, space design uh, for vr i mean there is there's of course the other um approach and say that you know because anything is possible why do we have to limit ourselves to something that looks plausible to the mm-hmm. human brain and eye and and I, I certainly like to experiment a little bit with it like try to you know maybe have some elements that are um not the, there is no gravity here so yeah actually these if you look at those stones there they were supposed to float but um Okay. Somebody added something underneath them. That's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's too experimental. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. too experimental. So, yeah. but um, but I guess like deep down in our brains, we're still these this mammal that lives on the African savanna, and um, mm-hmm. and and we still have gravity pu- pushing down on us when even with our headsets on. So I, I do think yeah. there's something for keeping um the what you design as some some kind of um familiarity sure. um, but i would really like to you know also explore things that are maybe more even more fantastical cool all right uh thanks for your time kim thank you for uh, interviewing me and for for us finally being able to do this